This is number th- <clears throat> 311. We got halfway through it last week. But I'm going to read it from the beginning because I really have been thinking about this one because I, quite frankly, didn't understand it last week, so I'm really glad I didn't get that far. We had tried to grow edible melons in the desert but had not been successful. Yet everywhere out there a type of melon, inedible or perhaps even poisonous, flourished in abundance. It grew on its own without help from anyone. One day the master was walking past one of these weeds and noticing it remarked, See, all this is a suggestion of God's. For no reason that a man can see, and by the suggestion of consciousness alone, the bad melons grow here, where no other melon will. His reference to those melons was to show that there is a conscious intention behind everything. That intention, applied to those melon weeds, demonstrated also the presence of the satanic force. For Satan, he said, is that aspect of the infinite consciousness which might be called the spoiler. Satan's handiwork is visible everywhere. He is the villain of the piece. The master obviously wasn't saying that the evils of this world, being suggestions of God, ought to be viewed as objects of worship. He was referring only to the amazing evidence all around us that there is consciousness itself everywhere at work. You know, last week when I was getting up to that one, I really didn't know what it meant. And I am still going to only half guess because Swami doesn't, he doesn't draw it out and explain it. Okay, I think last week I was talking about the documentary I saw about the first nine months of life and the example they used of the quadruplets where one egg went into four identical parts and and how in the documentary illustration, somehow or another, they actually put a camera inside the womb because you're actually looking at real fetuses. I don't know how they did that. But for this part, I don't know whether they're actually using a some kind of a microscope camera or whether it's an animation. But you see all these pulsing bits that are supposed to represent cells, either actually are cells, are supposed to represent them. And they're all alive and they're all moving and they're dividing and not dividing and they're explaining to you at this many weeks this happens and so on like that. But then there's this weird fact that this egg broke into four parts, this fertilized egg broke into four parts and created four identical people. And not knowing about the jiva inhabiting the womb and the jiva and its karma being the driving force, they can only describe it, they can't explain it. Well, what I was realizing when I was reading this about the presence of consciousness everywhere, that those melons are growing without any help from anyone. I mean, that melon, think of it, it's a seed. You know, you know what a melon seed looks like. And so if nobody eats the melons, because he doesn't speak of the fact that they feed the coyotes or the anything, although some, there must be some ecological relationship to other creatures. Um, in Master's time, people weren't always thinking like that. So maybe, maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't even true. Maybe they just grew and rotted and served no apparent purpose. 
but they would pro- uh, proliferate because the seeds of the melon would crack open and then they would grow again. Of course, you look at a seed and it just, I mean, where is the melon? You know, where is the vine? Where is the will to grow? It's just, it's just a melon seed. I, you know, I have bags of pumpkin seeds. I have bags of sunflower seeds, sesame seeds. Rice itself is, uh, you know, can proliferate into more rice, which is why we burn it up as a symbol of burning up karma in seed form. But somehow, some force of consciousness activates that. And the way he puts it here, God suggests it. God suggests to that seed that it ought to grow. There's no human intermediary, and there's no way you can make any sense out of it except with the, for the fact that its potential is inherent within it. And, and when, I mean, now shift over to, so, I mean, and then you have this part where he throws Satan in because he calls them, the, those, those poisonous melons are a spoiler, whether or not the presence of those melons presented the growth, prevented the growth of the good melons No one knows, but the whole desert around his place is littered with poisonous melons as if to mock them for their inability to grow good melons. You don't exactly know. It certainly spoils the potential of the situation in the sense that you would want to have from the human level. And I was explaining that last week about the human body and its um, role in evolution, so to speak, from a spiritual point of view. But there's also a conscious force that suggests um, to that suggests things that do not facilitate positive outcome, you know. And if those if those deserts were filled with beautiful edible plants that just grew on their own, and mankind should, could be sustained and add its higher vibration to that whole that whole place, then it would all be very different than it was. If if human beings could just live there and eat those melons, and they were, but the, the suggestion that those seeds responded to was a poisonous suggestion and and not a useful suggestion. You know, my my mind catches a little on the sort of ecological way people talk about things that there's no mistakes and so on. But some things are higher and lower vibrations. It has to be said. And that's also part, I mean, last week I spent a lot of time on that thought, so I don't have to work on that, that this much about, but, you know, the poisonous melon is not as high a vibration as the sweet edible melon because it doesn't serve higher consciousness like a sweet edible melon would. And Master even talked about the reason we use rose petals for Kriya initiation is because rose petals have the highest vibration. So otherwise, we could use pansies or marigolds. Marigolds are commonly used in India abundantly, but roses, Master said, have the highest vibration. That's why we use them. So even in the plant world, you see these, you know, gradations. And what about those plants that eat flies and are actually carnivorous plants? You know, what, what, where does the carnivorous plant fit in to things? And in their peculiar, and I think they smell bad. And, but I mean, flies are not nice, but still, you can see that in the plant world too, there's going to be gradations of refinement, if you think of it in terms of the devas. And so everything being a suggestion of God means that all of us 
This is Master's statement that ideas are not individual but universal and that we don't create our own thoughts, we merely tune in to what? To what is suggested to us. And so all of our own actions and all our responses to life are also God's suggestion, which is just that that phrase is such an interesting phrase. It's not his imposition on us, it's merely his suggestion. We have a choice. And then Satan is that vibration of infinite consciousness. And so you get confused on this when you think of, when you anthropomorphize God. And you think of him as as a guy pretty much like me, who wants pretty much what I want, and then you get confused. But if you think of it as Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss, and the suggestion is vibrations of consciousness that exist that we have the opportunity to tune into. And so everywhere is acting out the suggestions of God. In the political world today, you know, every person who makes, every, every one of us, Every time we make any decision, we are responding to a suggestion of God's because there's never a moment when we're outside of Satchitananda. That's what he's trying to talk about with these melons. Look at that. They don't have to grow here. And, and there's, no, there's no independent will that's causing them to grow, but those seeds are responding to a suggestion of God's. And now let's think of Luther Burbank for a while who persuaded cactus that it didn't need to protect itself and that it could let down its spikes. So it had been generations of protecting itself with those spikes and then Luther Burbank persuaded some cactus that it didn't have to. And, and you would have to say he elevated the evolution of those individual plants of the whole species. You know, you don't even know exactly how to think about it because Master said, he we need the microphone passed across, because Master said that he himself remembered back to the stage of being a diamond, which implies that that was the first point at which his consciousness individualized itself. And Swami had, has talked about crystals, of which a diamond, I believe, would be an example, being the the dividing line between animate, inanimate, and animate. That crystals are when consciousness begins, which match, matches Master's statement. But the plants are below that. So that one cactus that, or the one the p- cactus plants that um, were responding to Luther Burbank, like what was he responding to? But there's a fact, as I understand it. I was talking to someone who knew more about his life that he would plant hundreds of plants, or dozens at least, but hundreds, and he would walk down the aisle and he, could, and he would choose the ones that he knew were going to be the best ones for his experiments. So he would grow and then he would select, he would grow and select. But what was expressed to me was he didn't do it by careful analysis and by ch- going through a checklist. He could just sense which were the right ones and then he would just do it rather quickly because he could communicate with them. At least that was how the story was told to me. So what was he seeing? You know, the strength of the aura, the attitude of the plant, the willingness to cooperate, its receptivity to his suggestions? You have no idea, but he was definitely acting inspired to be an, an instrument to amplify 
the suggestions of God to cause the plants to respond in another way. I mean, all of which is fascinating because of, also because of what it implies for us about how we're always being suggested and that consciousness is everywhere. Yes? Well, I think you just answered it, is that I said, thought, well, where did, how did Luther Burbank get the inspiration? So he tuned in to a certain level of consciousness and then through him he went to the plants, And right? his particular unique way of relating, of being God's instrument was through the plant world. Sneha's the question on this side. No, you just never know, but he did it with so much divine inspiration that he, as, as Master writes, Burbank became a verb, which is to gradually modify and improve. And Master says so sweetly, how it just pleased him enormously that the saintly man's name became an actual verb for positive development. <laughs> yes. Um, I was thinking of the seeds and weeds that um, are in my own consciousness. Seeds and weeds, uh-huh. And I know that if the seeds don't grow within me, then I wouldn't know that that exists within me and that that's something I need to work with. So um, I was wondering, how do I relate with the weeds that are in my consciousness? The and weeds how- that have sprouted or the weeds that are potentially sprout to sprout? Are sprouted are spouted, yeah, the ones that are growing poisonous melons. Yeah, exactly those. right. So okay. <laughs> I, I can't possibly work them all out because they will grow back in because they're weeds. So how do I work with, with that in my consciousness? Well, when you start really getting a picture of the chakras and the vrittis and the lifetimes and the karma, it's real depressing because you just don't even know where you're going to go with it. Then you add to it what Master said, before God realization, every desire that you've ever had has to be satisfied. And Swami said, even a desire for an ice cream when I was a child? Master said, yes, that too. I mean, you really just, um, it's enough to make an atheist out of you just in self-defense, sort of like I was talking last week, or you just go crazy. But it's it's. The spiritual path is very much like um, the baby in the womb. There was a a well-known, very popular New Age teacher. I I can't remember her name, unfortunately, at the moment. I think it was Barbara. She might even still be living, so I'd like to respect her by giving her credit. But Swami, when he met her, he talked about this this talk that she gave, and he, he was impressed by it. He was talking about the birth of the New Age, and he talked about if you were the baby in the womb and you, and you were confined into that small space and you kept growing and growing and you were watching yourself growing and growing, you would become quite alarmed because you would really wonder how you could continue to sustain yourself in such a cramped space. I mean, she's just, this is a, just a story. Um, but, but the baby in the womb doesn't know that there's going to be a totally unexpected development which is just going to surprise the baby and change everything. And so she was saying that in our society today, we are very worried because we're the baby growing in the womb. How is the world going to sustain all these people? We just we do all these logical things thinking that what we're dealing with is what we'll always be dealing with, and it's quite obvious that it's not going to work. But we don't understand that unexpected events are in our future and it's really going to come out quite differently. And so it was, a, you know, it was a very 
um, creative and clear way to say it. Now, when we start thinking logically about our, our foibles and our shortcomings and, um, you know, how will I overcome things unless they come to the surface and if all my weeds have to grow and all the melons have to ripen, huff, puff, where will it ever end? But then comes in the spiritual path and it, it doesn't get fixed. We don't get clarity about how that's all going to resolve, going to resolve until our, we're desperate enough to be able to understand uh, a complete paradigm shift, so to speak. Plus, until we're desperate enough to be willing to do the needful in order to make use of what we learn. And then we learn about the chakras, the kundalini, the inner reality, and the possibility of kriya or something like it, which instead of having to deal with the weeds after they sprout, literally incinerates the seed. And if you incinerate the seed, or you cut the vine at the root, and then pull up the root, whichever, whatever you're dealing with, um, especially if you, if you cut it at the root, then pull up the root and incinerate the seeds, if you're going to go through the whole thing, then it's not, there's, nothing's going to grow anymore because you've changed it. You've, you've changed the whole context. It's not like, the, and it's not like, even though from a certain perspective it's endless, um, there's consciousness behind it all and there's a whole there's a whole other completely other system that we can use and what the, and, and so the kriya incinerates the karma um, by either burning it up as a seed which when you burn it up as a seed what happens is you have to realize that even though the karma may take a specific form um, let's say for example that one has um, one is disbalanced in the desire for security and is becoming, you know, obsessively focused on the, on the material world as the way to have my security. But the essential vibration that we're working with is I don't trust God at all. I have to get everything in order for myself. I don't trust a higher law. I have to have, uh, have it my own way. I, I, have, I had two experiences I'm not much inclined toward money, and I don't want to exaggerate that, but it's just not been an obsession of mine. When I was talking to a financial manager at one point, and he was talking about money, this was when I was dealing with my father's inheritance, my inheritance from my father. And he started talking about, you know, the different ways you could handle it. It was really interesting to me. It was partly because I guess I was sitting in this room where so many people have talked about money. I had this sudden intense desire to have lots and lots of money <laughs> and it just it just came over me like this feeling like I have just a little bit of money can you turn it into lots and lots of money and it was it was it was very visceral and I I, I watched it and laughed about it but it was very real it was very real and then on another occasion in my own house there's a closet under the stairs, and I had this strange desire to fill that closet with gold. 
and I wanted it to be all full of gold, not in boxes, but just in, in, you know, and I wanted to be able to go into that little closet and look at all that gold. Just like, what a weird idea, but it wasn't, it was real. It was like I had this need to fill that closet with gold, which of course was preposterous. But such ideas can be real for other people because they were, they were very real vibrations of consciousness for me. I just, they were old and, and whatever they, whatever I had needed to learn from them, I had mostly learned, so they just popped out in this weird way. But if you have a very strong thought like that, especially if one has the alternative of having a more spiritual attitude or a more, even just let's be simple, like why do we need to keep all the gold in the closet? Can't we do something constructive and helpful with it? Why do I have to be so greedy about getting more and more money? How much is enough? And if I make choices, which I'm sure I have done in the past, that prioritize my own insecurity and my own need for all that wealth above faith in God or concern for my fellow man or even concern for my family. I mean, we, all, we, we, we know all these stories. We've seen all these stories. They're acted out around us all the time. Or we see them in the movies or we see them in novels. We know what these stories are. If one is doing that, that is an unlearned lesson that's just going to have to be resolved. But so it may manifest itself as losing all our money or or from a positive point of view, we accidentally have to help people with our money and then we discover how much nicer that is than just hoarding it. You know, just but in some way or another one has to come into a balance with an attitude like that. But it isn't really that one needs a closet full of gold or a big stock portfolio or the capacity to feed ten thousand Brahmins or anything like that. The whole thing begins as a vibration of consciousness. On the spectrum between matter is the soul reality and God is the soul reality, if you just think of it as a spectrum, we vibrate just like the keys on a piano have a very specific um, number you know, that represents that exact tone. Every thought we have vibrates at a certain perception of reality. And since the whole thing is a dream anyway, we're just perceiving, we're choosing the suggestion of God or Satan. And it sort of just depends on how selfish it is. It's all Satchitananda, but some of it is downward pulling and some of it is uplifting. But it's not the closet full of gold. It's the fact that we're vibrating on that level. And if you're vibrating on that level, it will manifest on that level. So that vibrating on that level is like a seed of karma that I keep vibrating and believing this is true and this is a desire that I have that's going to have to be fulfilled because as long as I'm vibrating on that level, a piece of me is prevented from ascending. So when we start doing Kriya, several things happen. One is that perhaps we start generating magnetism at a higher level than needing a closet full of gold or, or suddenly just wanting to sacrifice everything to, to accumulate lots and lots of money. Like some of the little numbers on my whatever it is will look bigger. Um, but it's a, it, we, may accumulate, we may generate sufficient experience of the loving presence of God and the power of God to take care of me that the idea of a closet full of gold just seems preposterous. 
because this vibration has become so real to me that this one now looks transparent. So the karma is dissolved. Now again, think of the karma as a vritti. A vritti is a whirlpool of energy held together by one central thought, one central idea. And whatever that central idea is, that's the desire that Master was saying, that all those desires have to be fulfilled but they don't necessarily have to be, well, I don't actually know what Master meant. Whether you have to actually eat the ice cream or you have to get the satisfaction that the ice cream would have brought you on a higher level, I really, I don't understand how literal it is. But the vritti is held in place by the power of the central idea and by the, just have to pick this up, and by the dynamic interplay of the flow of energy up the spine compared to the power of the vritti. Think of a river and a whirlpool, which is an image I present all the time because it's so vivid. So the kundalini energy drawn in through the medulla circulates through the chakras, goes all the way to the base chakra and comes back up again. And either the full energy that we draw in circulates through the chakras. I mean, my ways of thinking about this are just my own. But the chakras go all the way to the earth element, the earth, water, fire, air, ether. And all of those elements are required to have a material life. You can't be in a material body without the earth element. So it's not that the earth element inherently is wrong, it's whether or not we circulate the energy, draw that energy upward and then express the upward moving potential of it, or whether as that energy circulates, I think of it like the UPS truck, whether it just keeps emptying itself out, supplying all those vrittis. And if it supplies all those vrittis, then by the time it comes back up for us to act, we have 2% of the energy we drew in because all the rest of it is keeping all these vrittis going. Just like a river heading toward the sea gets diluted, gets uh, diminished by all these vrittis. Our capacity to make a resolution, to go forward, to follow through on it, is entirely dependent on how much energy is being drained away by all these vrittis. Again, this is the gospel according to Asha. I don't really know if this is exactly how it works, but this works. You know, this is a way of understanding it. So, um, Kriya increases the flow of the river. And when it increases, if the river is stronger, every vritti that has less power to pull away from the center will get sucked into the center. So when you brought out that question, how, you know, I heard in that, I'm not sure exactly it's what you said, but if it doesn't come to the fore, how will I even know how to work on it? Well, see, what happens is, and this is why we change so much on the spiritual path, especially if you're following a path like this one, which cooperates in a very subtle way with the way we're made. And it's not like ours is the only path, but these are objective realities. And if you have a path that says, well, you know, you just bounce on your elbow and that's going to get rid of your, the vrittis in your chakras, it's just not likely to work as well as one in which you're actually working with the kundalini energy and the chakras and this. But every time you circulate the kriya breath, you know, one inhalation and exhalation and, and consciously run the energy through the chakras, you know, drawing energy in all the way through. And uh, you have 
magnetize the upward moving river and to, to whatever tiny extent every vritti that has less power than that river, some of that vritti will get drawn into the river. Until eventually you will actually absorb you know, many, many of these vrittis, which is to say you will dissolve the karma. Because the karma is created if that is magnetizing, if that desire is trapped there, it will have to be resolved somehow. And if you're not doing Kriya, the way it will resolve is sooner or later it'll sprout a poisonous melon. Or maybe even a beautiful melon, but it'll sprout the lesson. But if the river has increased, its energy will simply be converted into upward moving energy and you won't even know it. You will just suddenly find that you're more energetic, you're more cheerful, you're less likely to be upset, you're disinclined, uh, some of your bad habits have begun to fade, stuff that used to seem really appealing to you just isn't, and you don't even remember when you made any of those decisions because they weren't made by the conscious mind, they were made by a shift of energy. So this is the origin of the thought, don't worry about anything, you don't have to do anything, just meditate. And this is why often on the spiritual path, and this is a delicate issue, the place of psychological counseling is not, um, it, it's more subtle on the spiritual path because too much preoccupation with those vrittis can strengthen them. And so if we spend too much time reflecting on what I'm upset about and why and what caused it and, you know, what happened in this life and what happened in the lifetime before and who did what to me and now I'm meeting them again we can just end up just making that vritti bigger and bigger and bigger. Now there is also a place where, and the, the, the simplest way I can think of to put it is, you have no idea who you are or why you do anything. And you really need to spend some time getting to know yourself and figuring out why you're behaving the way you are and where your pain is actually coming from. And that is the, a very appropriate time when a neutral third party who knows how to get a person past their confusion can be very, very helpful. And then there's a point on the spiritual path where you know where your pain is coming from, you know enough about yourself, and, and more simply weakens you rather than strengthens you. And so this is where spirituality and psychology often divide because... I mean, there are many psychologists who have a, a profound spiritual understanding and they help you in this direction, but there's many who don't. And they don't believe at all in Kriya being able to dissolve your vrittis and so on like that. So each person has to kind of sort through and figure, you know, what is the size of the obstacle that I'm dealing with? How confused am I? Where is my clarity? I've certainly... I've never availed myself of, of actual psychological counseling. I've recommended it to people. I've met many very serious Ananda devotees who really, there's a hole in the system. There's a hole in the bucket. And they have hoped, they've hoped to skip that whole stage. <laughs> they've just thought that I could just give it to God and I'm never really going to have to deal with it. And uh, usually, it, depending how serious it is, often they have to go back. But when you go back with this understanding, it's, it's not very complicated. 
you just kind of sort out a few things and you get the picture and then you're able to go forward, especially if someone who's helping you is very good. And then there's a certain point where, eh, who cares? The problem is just the same. It's like it really doesn't matter who did what to whom and why. It's, it's sort of like I say, at a certain point, all karma becomes generic. You know, some weird thing in my life has the power to persuade me that I need to be afraid and unhappy. And maybe it'll be helpful to me to, ha- to understand a little more about it. Maybe it just doesn't matter. Maybe I just need to hold on and just keep going and just simply win over it by raising my consciousness until my consciousness has expanded to the point where it may still be there, but who cares anymore? I, another gospel according to Asha, which really has no basis in fact at all. I have to, di- this is big disclaimer. I have this theory that we never actually get any better that all our faults remain and that we're just as crummy as we ever were. We just don't care anymore. (laughs) And as a consequence, that whole mess just sits over here and we just have a really good time over here. And that is self-realization, that we're just, that just doesn't matter what this little ego wants or thinks. And the very real way to think about it is if you have a big piece of paper like this with a, a black dot and you hold it up to your face like that, then everything looks black. If you can lift it way out, the black doesn't change. It's still sitting there, but it's now on this enormous field. And so its capacity to influence you and your sense of proportion about how much of it it matters is completely different. Now, I don't really think that's how it works, but that's one of the thoughts that I've used to persuade myself just not to worry about me as much as I have been inclined to worry about me, where every little failing and every little thing, as Swami said, if you're so busy putting dust on your head, all you're thinking about is dust in your own head. You're not really growing. I think I said that last week. I could never understand the difference between guilt and actual spiritual progress. Swami tried to explain that to me. And then he could never quite understand. That was when he said, if all you're thinking about is your own head in dust, that's all you're thinking about. That's not freedom. That's just incredible self-preoccupation. So then I began to realize the past lives of all men are dark with many shames, and these are some of mine. But it doesn't have to actually define me. It's I who allow it to define me. And I began to realize that that was the problem. The problem was not that I had an inclination to do this, an inclination to do that, that I was lazy here and undisciplined there and, and uh, mean-spirited here or any of those things. Um, let's see, I, I just lost the thought for a second. Yes, the, well, the problem was that, uh, that because of those things, my attention became obsessively self-concerned. And it was the obsessive self-concern that was the problem The faults were just Satan's trick to get me to fall into that. And that was why Diamata's master said to Diamata, Swami said when she was a teenager, she came to master when she was 17, he said she was inclined to be moody. That was what Swami said. And master said, when you're in a mood, Satan has a hold of you. Because Satan has persuaded you that you should worry about yourself. And that's when I came to understand that self-realization... I thought that self-realization was 
with self-perfection as defined by my ego. But I, I came to realize, and I actually realized this sort of accidentally early on, but I wasn't able to act on it for decades. When I was first at Ananda Village in like August of 71, and I ended up being responsible for the kitchen, first as the assistant manager, and then quite suddenly I had to manage the whole kitchen because the manager actually got in her car and drove away in the middle of the night for reasons of her own, and I was left in charge. And I couldn't cook, which was a bit of a problem for the people who had to eat, but I, I knew I was a food fanatic, so I knew about food, but I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't make food that people enjoyed. But I had to take over this job. Uh, we, we were the kitchen for the retreat, and all the residents at the retreat, nobody had their own kitchens, or almost no one had their own kitchens, so all the residents had to take three meals a day there. It's like our CC community runs now, pretty much. About 30 residents, and who knows how many guests. Um, on Thursdays, we didn't fix meals. It was supposed to be a fast day. On Thursday, that meant that the residents snuck into the kitchen and fixed their own meals, but the idea was that it was a fast. Um, so six days a week, three meals a day, on Thursday, I would drive to town in a big truck and buy food. And I had one helper who was not quite right in her head, and that was the only helper I had. She was very sweet, but she didn't really have all her, all her circuits didn't fire. And uh, uh, I loved it. And I didn't have one minute to think about myself. And it was the first time in my life I was ever doing anything that I loved. Until then, I'd had jobs, but I never had a passion for anything, and I absolutely loved everything that I was doing, to the point where literally someone came up to me and said, how are you? And it startled me. Who? Like that. Because I was just so busy. I mean, this, I also began to learn the power of selfless service. Because I really, I had tons of energy, and I had no time. I had to cook, or if I wasn't cooking, I was washing dishes or going to town, and and then I also did everybody's laundry. I did like 30 loads of laundry every time I went to town, you know. It was totally fun. Absolute self-forgetfulness. And I thought, whoa, this is really, really good. This is great. And from that experience, I figured out, because I was, I was just happy all the time. But then I would stop and remember myself. And as soon as I'd start thinking about me, I would find all these reasons why I was suffering. And then the suffering didn't go away, I would just forget about it. Oh, I think there's a lesson here. You know, that was like very early in the book, I got to turn the page and read some of the later chapters, and then the pages flipped back and I had to go through the whole rest of the book. Okay, does that all, I mean, to your question? It was a long answer, but it was an important question. Okay. And so once you, you know, those sorts of things, you just, you say those things over, you, you, let me, I'm going to give you one more thought here. Um, Hari Das, who always had these wonderful, has these wonderful ways of putting things, he invented an acronym he called Spy Dog. S-P-I-D-O-G, Spy Dog. Solving problems in direction of God. <laughs> and so if you're unhappy about something, there's many different ways to solve it. And so he suggested we always practice spy dog, which is you can solve it by getting what you want and then enjoying it or making yourself secure in this way or that way. In other words, you can just find another horizontal solution. 
Or you can solve your problem in direction of God, which means you solve it by raising your consciousness, by seeing it in a bigger perspective. I mean, if something really tough is happening to you, for example, you can either try to find a way around it, or you can say, well, this wouldn't be happening to me outside the will of God. This is obviously a karmic debt that I have to pay. So I think I should just be really happy to pay it because if I don't, it will accumulate interest and then when it comes back, it'll be bigger. Or my favorite for myself is, I'm not enjoying this now. And if I have to see this karma again later in this lifetime or in another life, I'm not going to enjoy it then either. So I might as well just double down and live through it. You know, just without making any excuses, just this is what I have to do. I remember once... I was accused of something, and I was absolutely innocent. It was a weird situation, but there was sort of this belief that I don't even remember what the details were, but in some way that I had behaved badly. And I hadn't. you got to believe me. I was completely innocent. But when I thought about it, I realized I could have done it. (laughs) As it happened, I'd never had the opportunity, but I sure had the inclination And if the door had opened, I probably would have run through it. And so I felt like that I was factually innocent, but in truth I was guilty. And it was was a wonderful way to think about it, because it also took me away from the idea that the facts have to be on your side. There was a a young man in our community, pardon me? On your side. Sometimes the facts are, all the facts are wrong. Swamiji once scolded uh, us very fiercely for behaving in a certain way and mistreating someone in a certain way and responding to a situation. We were in a CC and he just, he really took us to task, which happens sometimes, but it wasn't that common, but he really took us to task. And we just, you know, if Swami wanted to scold us, we weren't going to protest. That certainly wasn't going to help anything. So we just listened and accepted and tried to understand. And about three days later, I said, you know, sir, all your facts were wrong. And he said, oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) but then he actually said something very he said but if if someone could even falsely accuse you he said you have a problem that you have to deal with meaning that accusation wouldn't have come if the potential wasn't there which was what he was saying the facts were wrong but there was still truth in the accusation even if the facts were wrong which is how you know how we took it which is well if Swami really wants to speak this strongly to us Obviously, there's something here we're supposed to learn, if nothing else, just to take his scolding with an open mind, but also to keep what he's saying to bear in mind. I loved, I just loved the way he said it. You know, I said, actually, you know, all the facts are wrong. And then I said, are you interested in what really happened? No, he said. Because <laughs> that wasn't the point. But so you sort of reach the point gradually where it's all generic. What difference does it make? You know, I'm either able to solve all my problems in the direction of God or I'm not. And so that's what we're really working for. But you have to be honest. You know, sometimes you have to just ferret around in there. You have to, you you can't skip it. See, this is what you think. I'll just offer it to God. I'll just be a devotee. I'll just say it doesn't matter. But think of it like this. (laughs) You know, if if I ask for Sai Ganesh's wallet and I open it, and I take his credit card, and I make a big donation to the Sangha, that's great. Look at me, I've donated all this money, but I didn't, it wasn't, I didn't own the money. So if we take our consciousness and we say, oh Lord, I offer it all to you, except this big, huge piece that I'm hiding from, 
And so you know, God is not fooled. We've acted like we're offering ourselves, but in fact we're protecting huge parts of ourselves. So it, 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 it doesn't work. It's just so simple. It simply doesn't work. You can either think of it as that God reads the heart and he always knows, or you can think of it as metaphysics, which is it's completely impersonal. And if you're hanging out up here pretending that this is your vibration and trying to run your life according to this vibration, all this other stuff is just going to keep roiling around and pretty soon it's going to eat it <laughs> and bring it here. This is what I've seen at Ananda. Anybody <clears throat> who puts on a personality of what they think they're supposed to be, or even often it's not like that, it's not deliberate, it's just we're trying to be something. We're trying to work out someone else's karma. Sooner or later, your karma comes and grabs you. I mean, it grabs you and sometimes in dramatic ways. You have a complete mental breakdown or you just suddenly have a wild desire to go get a closet full of gold and you'll go do it. Or some you know, relationship either explodes or enters your life. I mean, just all kinds of things happen because you have to be exactly what you are. If you don't own yourself, you can't offer yourself. And whatever we're not completely integrated in, it comes. And what I love about Ananda, love it, it's absolutely honest, and nobody ever gets away with anything. There was this one person who was around for a while who had a very, you know, this kind of matter, Master. Oh, Master, it's so glorious being on the path. I just love to read Guruji's words, don't you? Like this. And just sort of had this persona that was not fun. And then time passed, and someone said to me about this person, which was perfect. They said, you know, underneath all that play acting at being a devotee, I think there's a real devotee. <laughs> and in fact, there was. <laughs> a very serious person who just it took time to get all the pieces together. You know? And then sometimes it's just a joke. There was one lady very, very early on. She always wore white. She was always sighing. She was always clutching a little copy of metaphysical meditations, you know, and whenever anything got too, too, she would just open her little book like this. I couldn't stand her, and I thought there was really something wrong with me, but <clears throat> it wasn't sincere. It wasn't sincere. So there's just no point in trying, because it'll, it'll catch you in the end. And so when I hear people say, I, I heard someone say recently, oh, at Ananda we can't do this, at Ananda we can't do that, and at Ananda we don't do this. I said, I don't know. I mean, who are you talking about? It's like Ananda is us. And if that's who you are, that's who you are. And there's a, there's a story in um, Miracles and Answered Prayers. It's not in the Kriyananda book. I, I think the man's name is on it, but I won't say it on the recording, but his name is on it. The first line of that story I remember vividly. He says, you may think it's not possible to be a sincere devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda of Master and to be a drug addict. He said, but I'm here to say you can be both. And he said, Master said, if you're going to do something that you shouldn't do, bring God with you. And, and then this man goes on to say, it will not surprise you that that was one of my favorite expressions of Master. <laughs> and he said, I took Master to a lot of places. I don't think he would have gone on his own. <laughs> and then he just goes on to tell the whole story of how, you know, he was, it's in that book. It's a great story. It could be, it could be in the Kriyananda book, but I think it's in the 
But I always think about that. You may think you can't be both a drug addict and a Kriyabhan disciple, but you can. So whatever else we've got running, you can do them both. Okay, we're going to pause for a moment. Really came from certain tendencies in myself, which I'm aware of. They're they're there, and I've been working with them for a while. But I didn't have to deal with them on a daily basis. Say that again. I didn't have to deal with them on a daily basis. But now at work, there are certain people who have now come into my uh, daily awareness where they just bring it out in me. Mm. And so now, even though I was aware of it before and I didn't give it a lot of energy, now it's come into my focus and I have to deal with it every day. And I feel like it's ba- battle every morning. I go with the intention that it, this is not going, I'm not going to um, relate to it. But, you know, it just comes out. And at the end of the day, so it's just a cycle of going back to battle every morning. And so, I, and so now I know that there was a seedling, now it's a weed. <laughs> it's grown now. Uh-huh. And, and so that was the question of how do we, deal with it when now it's inevitable unless the person goes away the situation dies down by itself or I change so there are three outcomes and I was wondering how do I relate to it in a way that I I don't feel defeated at the end of the battle every day oh but you are losing so you will be defeated every day I mean let's start let's realistically this is the stage of the Mahabharata when it looks real bad for the Pandavas <laughs> um Let's, uh, let me think for a second what you're saying. Um, here, here's something that is another part of the way I visualize all of the working out of karma, which is just the way I make it up. Um, there's an expression that God never sends you more than you can handle. Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, I wish sometimes I wish God didn't trust me so much, which is a very fair response. But the way that works, if you think of it metaphysically, and we go back to the river and the whirlpool, <clears throat> the whirlpool will just keep spinning. Nothing in the whirlpool will, will come loose. It'll just be part of your reality, so you won't even know it's there. Until the river is strong enough to begin to dislodge it. And sometimes it will dislodge it in such a way that it's just effortlessly absorbed. And again, if you're thinking of a river and logs and... <clears throat> fallen trees and big things of mud and old refrigerators and stuff that have just all gotten sucked into this whirlpool, sometimes it doesn't flow smoothly into the river. It crashes into the river. It disrupts. The things hit each other. The whole river gets diverted for a while. You know, just you can imagine there's many ways in which these vrittis become absorbed. And some, you don't even know they're happening. You just have an expansion of freedom. And others are happening on such a colossal, chaotic scale that you can't think about anything else, that that almost all of the river is drawn into the whirlpool. But it would never happen until the upward-moving energy and the whirling energy had reached a certain point, which is to say, you have to be strong enough before the karma is going to come to the surface. The other way I think about it is when I was a, a... girl growing up and I was learning to sew. I had my little sewing kit and I had my pins and my needles and I don't know how, but I also had some little magnets in there. And I remember I would spend a lot of time laying out the pins and then playing with the magnets because they all just did such nifty things and 
you could make all the, the pins move. And there was always this relationship between the pins responding to the magnet and if I had two magnets together and all that sort of thing. So what we're working with our, with our karma is magnetism. So I think of our karma as like there's, there's this big sand, like my spine is this big pit of sand, and the karma is paper clips. And the paper clips are buried in the sand at varying levels and varying sizes of paper clips or little clusters or individual ones. Some of them are great big and some are those pretty colored ones, you know. Although I don't know if those are actually metal. But anyway, there they are. And every time I do a kriya, I'm passing a magnet over the sand. And depending how powerful the kriya is, or, or other, whether my moon is in Hades and whatever else is going on, passing that over and all the little paper clips begin to squirm toward the surface. <laughs> and then as the magnet gets po- more powerful, then they begin to squirm to the surface and then they begin to pop out. But they pop out in exact relationship to the power of the magnet. Because if the paper clip is more strongly buried than the magnet is able to pull, it'll just stay there even for incarnations. And it'll use up our energy, but we're just not ready to face it. So the first thing when you're facing an unexpected karmic opportunity, an unwelcome and unexpected karmic opportunity, is to absolutely believe that this would never be sent to you unless it was exactly timely. And that's a really powerful thought because one of the thoughts is either that it's unfair or that this is just so far beyond me, I can't do this. Or to think, I don't want to, I can't. You know, just, I can't, I can't. But if you really couldn't, you wouldn't be asked to. You can say, I think this is a really terrible idea. And you can say, like Mother Teresa, you really overestimate me. You really imagine that I have more strength than I have. But you can absolutely be certain you wouldn't be asked to do it. But the what makes it weirder is that we don't even know a lot of the time what victory looks like. Because it may have nothing to do, for example, just as a random example, with your ability to keep your equanimity in the face of whoever is annoying you. The whole test might be pride that has to be humbled, compassion that has to be awakened, failure that has to be dealt with. You know, it, 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 we think victory looks like X, Y, Z. But that's the ego imposing that I'm supposed to be a certain way and I have to be that way. And it's telling God that this is what it looks like and it isn't really necessarily true at all. It's just like you have to get up every morning and you have to do your best and the whole test could be what do you do when you continually fail and when your best isn't good enough. I mean, a person can be pushed merely absolutely to their limit in order because if they're not pushed to their limit, they'll never learn surrender. You know, there's just a thousand things which makes it completely unnecessary to do more than observe. If somebody comes to you and they say something and then you behave very rudely, well, it's nicer if you don't. You know, it's obvious. I mean, your common sense plays in here. But it isn't necessary for one to go and create a huge complex out of your failure. See, that's, that's the difference. We can fail, and then, well, there we are. And Brother Lawrence, who was a very humble devotee who wrote Practicing the Presence of God, 
Every time something went wrong, he would say, Lord, well, if you don't help me, look what a mess I make. And he just blamed God for every shortcoming. Because he said, of course, you know, if you leave me on your own, this is what's going to happen. You have to intervene. You have to save me. And it, it's just a mess. It never, it never tidies itself up. And what are you going to do? Give up? I mean, this is what you what you actually you have to actually say to yourself. And sometimes tests are really for no purpose, except for you to prove to yourself, and in some weird way to prove to God, you're not going to get rid of me that easy. You know, I'm not going to turn my back on my aspirations just because for 106 days in a row I fizzle. And it just you, and then you just get really interested. Wow, look at who I really am. And that's part of it. It's like, I didn't know I could be like this. They sent me once to the city of Palo Alto to talk to them about our sign out front in some petty little bureaucrat just tried to exercise her power over me. I was enraged. I can, I have a quick fuse and I can strike out when things don't agree with me, but this was another order of magnitude. I was enraged. I was, I actually was seeing red and I was, I mean, this was, well, this was 20 or 30 years ago, but it wasn't, it was recent, relatively speaking. I I was just out of my mind. I wanted to scream at her. I wanted to rip up her office. I wanted to burn down the building. These were all very real feelings I had. And after I walked out, it was like, wow, I didn't know I had that in me. It's just nobody had pushed me in a long time. That was the revolutionary, the violent revolutionary. So when you find out, wow, look at this. And then you have to strategize really differently. Because, see, something like that can just show me, you know, I haven't been strategizing properly at all. I thought I could just sail through with this and say, oh, no, I'm super vulnerable. I have to really think this really different. I have to set up strategies so I won't fail. I have to recognize that I can't possibly have conversations like this. I, You know, things that you would never know, but you were just living in a dream world. That's what Swami said to me when I was in something like this. He said, well, you just thought you were free and you're not. And now you know. I mean, that's how seriously he took it. Now you know. So now you can work on it. Which meant I had to back way up. I had to go way back to Inasmuch as if I talk to city officials, I am likely to get enraged. I have to think this out a little more carefully. Inasmuch as if this person at work, you know, talks to me this way, I will really become upset. I have to really think this through. So now you have to put out energy that you didn't want to. Is this bad news? This is annoying and disappointing. But you weren't working out your own karma anyway. You were just taking a free ride. So Now, I, I know how hard it is. I can articulate all of that, but I know how hard it is. And you really are in the part of the Mahabharata where it looks like the Pandavas are not going to win. So the other thing that you have to say is, I know how it ends. I know how it ends. The Pandavas win. Ha ha, so there. You know, right now it's not going in our favor, but we're going to win in the end. We know we are. And that, that's about half the battle. And it makes you very compassionate. I really know that.
you know, when you when you begin to fizzle badly, then all of a sudden you see all those other people fizzling, and you suddenly, instead of being impatient with them, you you suddenly are, you know, you really understand what it is to fizzle. And if you've not fizzled a lot in your life, you generally need to fizzle before you find out. Then I'll give you one more thing. Everybody in the world wants to be loved, no matter how horrible they're behaving. Everybody really responds to heartfelt friendship, no matter how horrible they're behaving. So, actually, the best strategy of all is to actually care about the people that you're dealing with. And now, I see, I have to, my caveat on this is, I came to Ananda at the age of 24, and I've never worked outside of Ananda ever worked outside of Ananda since I was 24. And prior to that, I never had a real job. I just had little pickup jobs here and there. So I really have no idea how you cope. So I, I start by saying that. So this is advice that makes sense to me that I've never had to test every day. But I know that if you're with someone and you actually love them, they can feel it. And if you actually just love yourself and want to manipulate them so your life goes better, they can feel that too. And some people are just scuzzy. And you have to behave appropriately, which may not be all that nice, or you might still have to be firm. But if you really care about people, they'll feel it. And here's one last strategy which I found has really worked. When you're with somebody who's just being impossible... You can pray to Master for help, which doesn't hurt. And my favorite prayer, my favorite broad-based prayer is Divine Mother, bless us all. Because that puts you in the mix and them in the mix. And you can repeat that, you know, while you're doing lots of other things. But the other thing that I've found really works is you're, you're sitting there having a conversation and they're being impossible, let's say, or you're being impossible, and you pray to that person's soul. Not to God, but to that person. Or, I, or I, another way to put it is, you speak to that person superconscious, and you say, what am I supposed to do with you? <laughs> you know, what are you trying to accomplish? Why are you talking to me like this? What can I do to help you? And I found that the most extraordinarily interesting and often very effective thoughts will come to you. And you'll just find yourself understanding and responding in a way that would never have occurred to you because really literally soul to soul that person is telling you what you what that person needs and you'll just go there it's it, that one is really fun when it works because it just it'll come out of nowhere very very weird thoughts will come out of nowhere is that helpful and then also stay hydrated Exercise. <laughs> um, uh, woman needs it. Uh-huh. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that it is worthwhile to strategize and put the energy out in uh-huh. dealing with those. You're talking about when you're in the work world and you have difficult companions. Yeah, just any yeah. relationship or any situation where you're forced to deal with right. your own um, limitations. <laughs> right. No, I actually think that's very, very good. And you really need to, you need to, when you're meditating, when you're at home, you really need to ask Master to tell you what you're supposed to do. And you need to t- 
take the person or the situation and hold it in the spiritual eye and just try to infuse it with divine energy and lift your heart up into it and say, Master, this is a mess. And I remember I, I, had, I was in a tough situation where I always, I always responded badly. And I said, Master, if you test me, I'll lose. <laughs> you know, you know what's going to happen. If you open me to this particular situation, it's going to be awful. So the only possibility is that you have to protect me. And when I would really pray that prayer with a lot of energy, I would almost always be protected. It just wouldn't happen. Because I was sincere and I was throwing myself, I was pleading for mercy. And it was just like, I'm not going to pretend that I can handle this. I am so like not able to handle this. And it's so terrible. That's another way of strategizing. That's not as good as actually being practical, but it helps. You know, we're toast if you test it. You want to know how I'm going to respond? I'll tell you. Awful. <laughs> so it help, that helps too. Okay? And see, and in the end, that could be the whole point of the whole experience. It's just to teach you to have a very honest relationship with God and Guru that you might not have ever come to if you're, if you're busy being great all the time. You know? I wanted to mention about this was that I happened to have a friend who seemingly luckily could walk away from a lot of such situations. She came into money very early so she didn't have to, like if something bothered her at work, she got rid of going to work. (laughs) But strangely like uh, it's been 10 years (laughs) that she has the resources seemingly, but since she's walked away from what seemed like conflict instead of dealing with it, it hasn't brought her to a happier place. Like seemingly those same similar conflicts are still coming up in her life. And so that makes me more aware that like what you were saying, deal with it now or later. Or deal with it now later. Because later is also now. So there, there is no later. There's just now. It's just now, now, or now, now. <laughs> but, but what you're also saying is true, and this is what helps you stick with it. This is my karma. I, and there just there's no point. I just have to deal with it. And you know, not all periods of your life are good. Some periods of your life are terrible. You know, your horoscope just turns into skull and crossbones. And part of the spiritual path is, am I in it just on the sunny days or am I also in it on the rainy days? And that, that can be the test too. You know, many saints talk about, they just go into a dark night of the soul because, I mean, I, that happened to me when we went through the litigation all those 12 years. When I entered that, Ananda was just an innocent, happy place. Everybody loved us. We were the darling of the spiritual community. And then we just became the scapegoats of everybody. And it was just, and it was, you know, years of intermittent ugliness that just went on and on and on and on. When it was finally over, I thought I would just bounce back to that cheery, you know, innocent person. And after about a year, I realized, wow, it's never coming back. You know, that was what the innocence of ignorance. And then I had to develop the innocence of wisdom, which was entirely different. And that, among many, many reasons, that was one of the reasons it happened for our entire community, is that, you know, I have to be, happiness is a choice. 
I have very, I have had very good karma in my life, and my trials are internal rather than not, for the most part. But for the most part, thank you, God, I've been graced in countless ways. So whenever I'm not, which also happens, I get to develop whole different muscles that I didn't know were there. But you, you can always just dull your consciousness and run away, but sooner or later. And yeah, it takes a lot of... That's why out of a thousand... Only one seeks God, and out of a thousand who seek, only one realizes God. Because most people discover that it's harder than they thought. So you have to also ask yourself, you know, which side of the ledger am I going to fall on? And then these are very important questions. And then be practical, like Ramilla is suggesting. Okay, I know this is going to happen. I'm not going to meet this person alone. I'm always going to have them with... I'm not going to have the conversation in the coffee room. I'm going to sit down and be direct. I'm going to I'm going to sit myself in a comfortable position. I'm going to fold my hands. You know, just whatever, a thousand things so that you're really ready for it because if you're vulnerable, you have to think like that. And it's helpful. All right. And, and I'm going to give one last suggestion. Fill your pockets full of sacred things. <laughs> I mean, I care. Fill your pockets full of sacred things. You know, put pictures of Master inside your phone. I mean, maybe you have a little of that, have a lot of it. You know, wear your mala all the time. You know, just add as much spiritual armor to your life as you possibly can. I mean, all of these are the things that make it, they really make a huge difference. One of my friends, he couldn't keep anything out, so in his desk drawer is where he had his pictures. And whenever things would get a little tough, he'd open his drawer and pull out a pencil. Because <laughs> then he could see the master smiling at him, and then he pushed the drawer back. <laughs> Just recently I had a, a test where I um, <clears throat> had to uh, pull in, but I had some months before lost one of my bangles mm-hmm. that had an important stone in it. And I looked around, but I didn't forcefully, you know, try everything. I, I just let it go, finally, and mm-hmm. kept going with what I needed to do. And on the day before it resolved, which happened to be yesterday, uh-huh. um, <clears throat> I was looking madly for something under the bed, and the bangle. The bangle is there, yeah. isn't that interesting? And so then the next day, you know, huh? How interesting. Yeah, you just never know. Okay, very, very good. That was, I did only number 311, but we finished it. We got involved in Satan, so that was a long story. Okay, thank you all very much. That was fun. You know, um, Shraddha, Shraddha Williams, let's see, I think, yeah, Kent and Shraddha Williams. Shraddha, I can't remember, they were, they, if I have the story correct, they, um, Ups- they got she got upset in a kayak and got just swept down into a whirlpool and had to fight with the river to get back up and you know made it all through lost her bangle her her this bangle you know and there was no real reason why it would have come off but her life was saved but she lost her bangle yeah now i i think i have that story correct it's something really close to that and i think it was shroud and not kent but it's just like it just in that on that moment it sacrificed itself for her. There's a story in the Miracles and Answered Prayers book where 
um, Vasanta was hiking and took a terrible fall but wasn't hurt. But when he went to do his Kriya, he realized that one bead had come off his mala. And the, the, the wire or the string hadn't cracked, but somehow in the way he fell, it just, and he, he really felt when he got to that, that, that you know, one bead had been sacrificed, but his life had been spared. Who can say? You know, these things are just beyond us to know. So, anyway. Okay, end of story. <laughs>